Welcome to Moving With Life. This is episode number 20. I am Andy Acosta. My friend Eddie Sines is joining me today. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for lending us your ears. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to leave reviews and comments. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. So episode number 20, we dive into a book titled When the River Dreams, The Life of Marine Sergeant Freddy Gonzalez, written by John W. Flotis. The reason to diving into this book is because this past weekend was Memorial Day weekend, and that's that was the end goal for this podcast, was to bring this story out and shed some light on one just one soldier who didn't come home after a war, you know, in, in this particular case, the Vietnam War. Um, so many facts, so many great, de- so much great detail in this story, and me and Eddie really enjoyed it. It was it was enlightening, it was informative, and again, the point was to remember, you know, all those who served and didn't come home, and why Memorial Day exists in the first place. So, without further ado, here is moving with life. So it's Memorial Day weekend. Yes, it is. <laughs> and it was, I, it, it didn't click for me at least until today. Because you had said, you know, I hope everybody's having a great Memorial Day weekend. And even I failed to think about why do we have a Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. You know, like, and, and, and it, that's basically how my day's gone. You know, like, like, Mac, trying to, of course, you know, my family came over. We had barbecue and stuff. We we're still celebrating my cousin's first communion, so that was still like priority as far as you know what we had planned for the day. And uh, but again, it's like man, you know Memorial Day weekend, especially because I you know I don't know if you've seen anybody, but I know I've seen people uh, of course posting they're at the beach or they're out of town. They're on some type of little vi- mini vacation, as the, as people call it nowadays. That happens a lot. I feel like especially this holiday weekend. Mm-hmm. So. With that, I was like, and that's because um, I, I had prepared the podcast for this week, but again, not, nowhere was there like, I guess you could say content to at least mention, you know, about Memorial Day weekend. I feel I, I, like uh, leading up to now, you know, I felt it necessary to, hey, we should, we should mention it at least. So then, of course, naturally, Jocko posts a Memorial Day uh, little excerpt today. Uh, it's like 14 minutes, and it's basically a letter. And I didn't even finish listening to it because I immediately uh, got to then processing, literally, I mean, skimmed through the entire book from in like an hour and a half, like from when my family, most of my family left to right now when you got here. Um, and I'll get into this in a bit. But anyways, let me uh, finish Jocko. As far as uh, he read a letter, because he talks about, of course, when you go to war, these guys write their letter, you know, and it's basically their, you know, if they die, that's the that's their last, that's their final word, right? And so he read this one, and of course he taught it's 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 and it's it's a true story. It's, it's a real letter of a soldier that died. And I I don't 
I don't want to even get which war I'm, I think it's one of like the Iraq or Afghanistan. I think it was the more modern wars that that uh, has happened. But of course, first she starts off with you know I, I owe everybody gratitude. Uh, this is the soldier talking, you know, from, from the letter. You know, I I owe everybody gratitude. You know, to my wife. You know, my universe. You know, everything like that. And then he had one. I believe it was one boy who one little boy who I don't even know how old, but he was young. Anyways. And, of course, he says, you know, you're going to grow up to be a big, strong man. You know, you're going to be with your mom. And then then a newborn that he never got to meet. And so as soon as he got to the newborn, I was like, okay, this podcast is going to be about Memorial Day. That, that's it. You know, I, 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 if it turns into a conversation, cool. If it doesn't, okay. So that's where I started with. And I was like, okay, so what, what book do I want to use? You know, all of last year, I read, you know, several military books. And mo- most of it's leadership where it's written by, you know, Colonel David Hackworth. He served in Vietnam. He, expl- I mean, he doesn't directly say, oh, these are good leadership, bad leadership. He just gives his story. And initially, Jocko also uh, picks apart this book. So then I read it to get the full detail. And, you know, there's things here and there, you know, the, you see the concept of a good leader. You see the concept of a bad leader. You see teams giving up on their leaders because they're just not doing the best job they can do, right? So there's all that mix. So there's him. Major Dick Winters from World War II has another book. Uh, it's called Beyond Band of Brothers, who he just passed away recently, a uh, World War II veteran. And, he, like I said, that book I also read last year is super, I mean, super good. So anyways, so I was trying to debate, and I was like, um, I had this one book. It's called When the River Dreams, The Life of Marine Sergeant Freddy Gonzalez by John W. Flores. I got given this book years ago when it came out. Let me see when it came out. Let me open that real quick. This book got released 2006. John released it 2006. And uh, got it signed. It was pr- it's pretty cool. Got, you know, to Andy Acosta from John, you know, Semper Fi. And then uh, Dolio Gonzalez, who is Marine Sergeant Freddy Gonzalez's mom. And, well, I guess I might as well just say it. But uh, Dolia, she's my aunt. She's she's family relative. Oh, not even family relative. She's my aunt. You know, she's uh, she's my grandma's sister. And I, I rarely ever mention it. I guess now, now it's going to be on the podcast but I just feel like that context needs to be there because, like, well, how did you find this book? Well, because I got the book given to me, you know, from the author that, you know, wrote this story. So as I was going through it, I, I was amazed because of let, – let's just assume that these facts are 95% accurate. You know, I mean, th- this, is, this, is, this is a point of view, and even Jocko talks about it where, you know, authors who write books, especially, like, a – somewhat biography about somebody else you know i mean there's there's gray areas obviously i mean that's with everything you know that also goes to that can also be gen, uh, generally seen as like point of view you know everybody has a different point of view so everybody has a different perspective and writes differently so anyways so as i was going through this book and i and there's a lot of fact i i definitely recommend the read and we're going to go through it right now um but when i out like I said, I was first thinking about, okay, what book am I going to use? Am I going to go World War II? Am I going to do Vietnam? Am I going to do the uh, Benghazi, their terror, which happened in 2012? Uh, those, uh, those six guys who served in Benghazi uh, for the CIA base. There's that. Uh, there's, uh, what else do I have? World War II, Vietnam, 
the Benghazi attacks. I have another World War II book by E.B. Sledge who served in World War II. It's called With the Old Breed. So I, anyways, there's several books. And finally, I remembered I had this one, which is, like I said, When, when the River Dreams. And I said, well, let, let me start it. Let me start it. Let me, let me, see, let me see what content. Because at first I thought it was very like a third-person like deal. And this guy, John, he actually worked for the Monitor for a number of years. Uh, so he he's very well known with the value. I don't know if he's born here or not. I was try, actually trying to. I didn't look up on the internet because I, I honestly I I didn't have the time, but I was uh, trying to skim the book to see if I had any if I could get any content from him. But all I found was that he wrote for the for the monitor. And at some point he talked with my aunt and then well my other aunt, which is Dolia's sister, because um, I used to work at the Echo Hotel downtown Edinburgh, and. He, he mentions that he would go to lunch there every day, and eventually he talked to like the head chef at the time. This was like back, I think, in the 90s. I think it took, he said it took him like 10 years to like get, like to compile this book. So finally, he, my aunt says, yes, I'll talk to you. Cause I, and I, I do remember this. I remember being at her house and like some people from the monitor coming by, and she didn't want to talk. You know, and, and I only knew, I mean, you're a kid when we're, I mean, I was like, what, seven, six years old, like six, seven years old. We're young. You know, you don't think about the things we think about now, even as 25 year old millennials, you know, whatever. So I would, when I would see him and then she would, she would, and I see, I see, I'd see her turn, turn him down. And I guess this guy, you know, he, he just, you know, stayed persistent and, you know, he, he definitely, definitely, I would say do it right, you know, because there's, there's also, if you're nagging, 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 you know, you're not, you're more than likely not going to get it right. Anyhow, I'm going to jump into this book and we're going to see where it takes us. This was uh, his first letter to my aunt, July 9, 1965. Hi, Mom, how are you? Well, I am fine. I received your letters today. And from Margaret, Leo, Ella, Grandmother, Maria Elena. Well, this first week at Camp Pendleton Rifle Range was a little hard and easy. Well, I saw the Pacific Ocean. I can see it from the base. We sure get up early. But I am used to it. So Shorty is back at his base? Well, I have two weeks here. Hope I make it with the rifle. I fired the M14 rifle Tuesday and today. It's not very hard. Here at Camp Pendleton Rifle Range, we have large barracks. I also re received a letter from Delia. If you see more of my friends, tell, tell them to write me. Today I received six letters. Glad to hear that the car is working. Hope it does not break down again. Mom, would send you money, but I need it here for laundry and all the things I use. I don't need money, so don't worry about that. I got paid last. I received $65, but had to pay back 45 for all the things I got when I got here. Don is very quiet, but it's cold at night. What is Milo doing in California? He, he won't any that isn't in Texas. Well, how's the valley? I sure miss dear old Edinburgh. So Coach Barry is going to be a coach. Keep it coming. I miss you a lot but it's only a short time before I get home. I am counting days like all the guys here. Love, from your son, who loves you with all his heart, Private Alfredo Gonzalez. P.S. I am going to church regularly. I have not missed a Sunday. 
I have gone to confession too. I know we will win because the Lord is on our side. Bye, Mom. Say hi to everyone. Grandmother, but she is home. Aurora, Krista, Marielena. I received her letters. Little Joe, Blanky, Uncle Tedrio, Aunt Mary. Bye, Alfredo Gonzalez. California is big and pretty, but I feel like Texas is bigger. I wouldn't trade it for the world. All right, so here's chapter one. He was, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, especially now, we've been getting a lot more views on YouTube, which is really awesome. I hope everybody's been enjoying it so far. Um, but we do live in this town. I, I won't even call it small town anymore. I mean, there's 77,000 people. <laughs> it's not that small. You know, there's a elementary down Sugar Road called Freddie Gonzalez Elementary. There's a street that was coined after Freddie after his service in Vietnam. Uh, Freddie Gonzalez Street. And there's even a VFW post that's also commemorated for him. So there's several things out here in Edinburgh. So if you ever, if you were to come by South, you know, deep South Texas, specifically Edinburgh, you know, if you see Freddie Gonzalez, Alfredo Gonzalez, that's the reference, and this is the re this is the book that I'm uh, getting some facts from. So here's the book, chapter one. The nearby Rio Grande was flowing and full after heavy rains on typical sweltering South Texas night. May 23, 1946, when Alfredo Gonzalez Cantu was born in a small three-story brown brick building named City County Hospital in the city of Edinburgh. The tiny baby was smiling soon after crying a little, and he was picked up and whisked away by a nurse. The doctor scribbled on a chart as he checked the mother carefully. A few weeks earlier, the doctor, Joe May, had advised a 16-year-old mother, Dolia Gonzalez, that she might die if she gave birth because she was not well and the fetus did not seem to be doing well either. How is my baby, Dolia said, crying a little herself and holding a white monogrammed handkerchief the doctor had given to her. Tell me he's going to be okay. The tall, thin, pale-faced doctor with thick black hair and black-framed glasses continued his examination on her without speaking. Even with the serious situation, his face was friendly, a nice, broad smile with white teeth, a strong jaw and chin, and kind eyes. He wore a dark suit and tie and a white shirt and a white doctor's smock. And he moved slowly, deliberately, checking her blood pressure with the old-style portable device stationed on the table next to her bed. He slowly inflated the upper arm cuff with the stethoscope pre pressed against the artery of her arm below the cuff, listening for the pulse while watching the systolic and diastolic pressures. So that so that, that was interesting to me because I, I knew my aunt was young. I didn't know it was that young. I mean, 16. And I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say it's common now because if it happened then, then it must have just been as common, you know, just that the media is different now. You know, the way the word gets out is different. So that was interesting to me. So moving forward here. Even though she was getting stronger, when Dolia left the hospital with her son, she did so by necessity. 
She could have easily stayed a few more days to fully recover. I had to work. I had to earn money. I was working as a waitress at the cafe downtown, and I couldn't lose that job. And years later, I worked at the doctor's office and cleaned it, and we lived nearby, she said. Though her mother and father, brothers and sisters lived nearby, and they all worked, she still felt she had to pull her weight, especially with her new baby. In those days, families pulled together, you know. They worked and put their money together and took care of each other's kids, too. So you, so you knew who your babysitter was because it was probably your brother or sister or mother, Dolly said with a laugh. She assumed both roles, mother and father. We didn't have much, but we had a good life. My dad was a trucker. He used to haul people back and forth, and we used to go to work in the cotton patch, and Freddie did, too. My son was a good worker in the fields. Cabbage, carrots, cotton, you name it, he did it. And you know, we walked everywhere we went in the early days. So that that's just, again, just giving a little introduction to the lifestyle, you know. And for her, for my aunt, for Dolia, you know, she, as opposed to saying, oh, man, you know, poor me or whatever. It's like, no, I got to work. She went right after it. Just for frame of reference, so she was 16 when she had Freddie. That makes, then he was born in 46. The letter you read was, um, that he'd written from Camp Pendleton was written in 65. Mm -hmm. Makes him about 19 years old when he was, I guess, in the Marines? Yeah, that's when he signed up, yeah. It was, a, it was the dawning of a brand new age, the single-parent household. But for women like Dolia, that did not mean anything resembling liberation. More like the change of responsibility. She never looked at raising Freddie as a burden. Instead, it was her greatest privilege, a joy. Her love and sacrifice for him over the years would help Freddie become a man of character and courage. I just wanted to make sure to point that paragraph out because it's different hearing some parents now. So as growing, it, it kind of already briefly mentioned, but you know, growing up, Freddie and my aunt and them, you know, they worked in the fields. That that was that was one of the ways to be able to make a living. It wasn't just, uh, I, well, not even just, it's not, it's not like today. You know, today there's technolo technological advance where you can work on the internet, you work on a computer, you work in an office. And while there's always been office jobs, you know, particularly maybe like banks and stuff like that, you know, at the time, Edinburgh was a small town. You know, there wasn't chain retail. You know, it was local retails, local restaurants, locally owned, you know, um, especially, I, I know there's, like, I mean, names, you know, McCallan was a person, Farr was a person, Champion was a person, uh, Sprague was a person, you know, all these streets that are named here in Edinburgh, yeah. like, they're all people that helped build what is now Edinburgh, you know, and, and it's, it's just interesting, interesting to me, but that's what it was. Then it was a small town, you know, that's, that's just the way it was back then. And even then where she mentions that she wa they walked, you know, they, 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 they walked, that, that was their way of transportation. Oh, here we go. So, in, it was summertime, the middle of August 1960, and Freddie had already made the transition from water boy for the work crews in the fields to regular field laborer. But soon, he proved himself to be much more than that. Skipping forward a little bit. Today, most jobs are done by machine, though some are still manual labor and the pay is still low. Working and living conditions often remain, remain substandard. 
and I, I just want to tie that into what I just said, you know, as far as you know, the, the way of life then, you know, there w- the university was probably like half a block compared to what it is now. You know, there's, there was space, there was fields, there was trees, you know, it was a town, like reiterating, it, it was a town. It wasn't a city yet. Freddie liked to remember when he was just a little kid, eight or nine years old, and Julia took him and Cousin Shorty to the movies in town to see The Sands of Iwo Jima with John Wayne. The movie is about a tough Marine sergeant, John Stryker, played by Wayne, who trained and led young men in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Freddie remembered the feeling when he first saw that film. It was a surge of pride that rolled in his young soul like an ocean. The movie showed real battle scenes, battlefield, battlefield film segments of the taking of the little desolate Pacific island of Iwo Jima from the entrenched and fanatically deadly Japanese army. Later, there was a timeless scene of the raising of American flag on the island's highest point, Mount Suribachi, immortalizing those young men who raised the flag. Several thousand Marines were killed in the, in the bloody taking of the island a critical possession that, has, that was to become a stopover for U.S. airplanes operating in the Pacific as forces gradually edged closer to the Japanese mainland. I just wanted to read that part because that was his first little uh, just fake feed. There was that bug that, that bit him to you know, maybe inspire him to maybe one day serve. It's very interesting. Yeah. It's very cool. I mean, just for frame of reference, like it, it makes me think about the first time I got like bit with that music bug you know and and maybe for anyone listening maybe now you're thinking about what you're passionate about and the first time that you felt that that spark just ignite with you or within you rather about whatever whatever it is you're passionate about and you read my you mean you took the words right out of my mouth because that's that's exactly what i thought i'm like eight or nine years old I'm like okay what was i doing eight or nine years old i was like just barely diving into music like i hadn't even started like learning drums yet, or guitar yet I know I was starting drums and by this time I was already well into piano so like I was there but the bug didn't hit me till 10 but the, you know here they are eight or nine years old and it's like oh there's you know there's a chance you know, something like that happens so so he, again he works in the field uh, eventually does I mention here he eventually worked enough to where he was able to get his the first car and my aunt mentions where my aunt mentions that he bought his first car. She was happy because now he could drive himself to school. He could drive her to work. He could pick her up from work. They didn't have to walk, and that was a big, big accomplishment. That was the thing. So now we're skipping basically towards his senior year. Finally, it was time for graduation. Dola came home early that day, and Freddie was watching TV spread out on the couch. Dola was extra excited for several reasons. This was the day she had always hoped for since that long ago morning that she'd taken Freddie to the first grade. Freddie watched the TV but was not paying attention to it. His mind was somewhere else. Suddenly it hit him again, and it started sinking in that he was really going to graduate, the first in his mother's family to do that. This is really it, Mom, he said. She smiled and went to her bathroom to, bedroom, sorry, bedroom to rest. Freddie took a shower and got dressed, all spiffed up. There were long hours leading up to that final moment when he would walk across that stage for both himself and his family. He was nervous because he knew how much it meant to Dolia. It was something she desperately wanted for herself, but she had to drop out and raise her boy. He was always acutely aware of her sacrifices for him. And that's why, 
even though he was not the scholarly type at all, played football and worked on the weekends, he was determined to get that last year done. Plus, he knew the high school diploma would help him in the Marines and later on in his life. He'd been telling Dolia that after his first four years was over, he wanted to come back to Edinburgh and get a degree at the local college and then football coach, coach football at EHS, Edinburgh High School. Some of his old buddies still remember that Freddie desperately wanted to return to EHS and be a football coach. Also, years later in the interviews for this book, friends remembered Freddie's good sense of humor during his, good, during his high school days. Less than a month after graduation, Freddie rode a bus from Edinburgh to San Antonio with several other guys from his town. And once he arrived at, this, at the bus station in downtown San Antonio, near the Alamo and the river, he caught a taxi with a few of the boys and they went to the Marine Corps recruiting office in the downtown area, a few, a few blocks away. It was a two-day process that involved physicals and paperwork, so they had to, they have to get a hotel. Freddie had saved a good deal of money that past summer, even as he helped Dolia with the bills and was able to buy the used car and he was, and he was affording himself a good time in San Antonio. He hadn't been able to travel to big cities much except with the football team. The next day, June 3, 1965, a group of young men all raised their right hands and were sworn in to the Marine Corps. Freddie signed up for the reserves for, for a one-month period and then he would go back and be sworn into the active duty Marines with the standard four-year enlistment. He would report to boot camp in San Diego July 6, July 6, 1965. So there, he, he's now 18, 19, and he's now going to be a, a Marine officially. On the same night that he came back San Antonio, Freddie went out with some of his friends and they parked at the pool hall, another, another popular joint for kids. There they met J.J. Avila, Robert Vela, and a few girls from school. So Fred, you finally did it. You, you really did it, Robert said, walking to the car. Freddie got out and shook his hand. Yeah, it feels kind of strange knowing I, will, knowing I will be gone for a long time, he said. J.J. Avila hit Freddie on the shoulder. Yeah, but you're up, you're up for it. Feel those muscles. You're tight, man. You're in shape, Freddie said. The plane ride over there might be the toughest part. I've never been on a plane. They all laughed. So J.J. Avila, I know he's, I, at least I've known him for a long time. I never knew that he was basically a family friend. Uh, he has now had, I mean, J.J. Avila Sr. technically because he has J.J. Avila Jr. That's our age. He's about 24, 25, or 25, 26, I think. Uh, I know he's playing basketball. I don't know if he's still playing basketball, but I know he had played for Navy. He then transferred to, I think, Colorado State, and he was playing for them. So he still, I mean, he was doing that. Actually, I remember. He's actually now playing for the Bulls D-League team. That's what he's doing now. I, think, I believe he graduated. or Whether he graduated college or not, but I know he's playing for a D-League team and working his, he still wants to play. He, he's always been an athlete. I think, I think he's like 6'5", 6'6". Like wow. He's, he's, he's a big boy. And he grew – I, dude, I remember being in sixth grade playing peewee. He was already 6'3". Like he was already six, like over six foot because he was just monstrous. And you mentioned um, Robert Vela in there too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. The late it's, um, Robert Vela. The late Robert Vela, who is uh, the uncle, uh, the late great uncle of a, of a friend of ours that we graduated high school with. Man, it's. Um, I know, like back then, it must have been a really, really small town, and now it doesn't feel so small sometimes, you know. But, man, just 
still shocking just how small it feels, even maybe at, uh, what is Edinburgh, 77,000 people? Yeah. About? 77,100. Still feels like such a small community. You mentioned those names, and yeah, I know those names. Yeah. I know their, I know their grandkids. I know their nephews. I know their nieces. Went to, we went to school with all of them. And now there's a high school named after Coach Yeah. Bell. Yeah, man. It, I mean, I'm going to pause just for a second because what we feel in this room, and hopefully we convey it on, on, the, on the audio, but it's it's very real you know this is you know it's it i'm seeing that it's one thing to read a, a somewhat of a biography for, from someone from world war Two or any war for that matter but reading home this is home this is part of our this is part of the town history you know speaking of going to the south texas history museum and all these all these things that are here downtown and and they have um freddie gonzalez's uniform at the museum mm-hmm. yeah and i have the privilege of having one of the honor flags that they sent to my aunt. It's here in my room, and mm-hmm. I have it here. Uh, she she gave it to me. There's there's other mem- memorabilia that we have, but for now it's at. Her. I mean, she has a, she has a, a lot of awesome stuff at her house, but she did give me this one uh, a few years ago. I think when <laughs> around when this book came out, I can't read that date, but it's I think it's like 2000. 2008. 2008. So that's when she gave me that one, and I was on my way out of high school. Quick side note. That was around the time that the Marines pulled me out of class. I'll never forget the recruiter pulling me out of class to try to get me. And he's like, "Yeah, if you go to college, you'll uh, you can start as a, you can start off as a sergeant or uh, you know corporal, maybe something you know higher than a private. You know, basically private. You're the beginning you know beginning stages. You're quote unquote a grunt, and then you go private first class. Then I believe it's corporal." And then sergeant, you know, sergeant will be the next one. Then you, you move up the ladder. Honestly, I'm not gonna. I don't want to get anything anything else confused. But speaking of 2008, I do remember a marine recruiter pulling me out of class, and I went to like the office and like, oh yeah, I speak to him, and I see this guy in the marine, the the dress uniform, not like camos. You know, they're trying to present. You know, the dress blues. Yes, dress blues. You know, very serious. I'm like, oh man, and and it, and I thought about it. I I didn't think about okay. Honestly, I didn't think about it too hard because. It wasn't it wasn't enough to convince me because I knew I was gonna go to college, you know. Like I like I still had four years ahead of me. Like I didn't know what was gonna happen, and at that age, for me at least, the war was already going on. You know, September 11th had already happened. So maybe had I been that age, you know, in 2001, it would have been different. It would have been totally different. Of course, that's almost 10 years ago, and look where we're, we're still at now, technically. Yeah. So, anyways, to not digress more, but. Um, Interesting side note that I just remembered right now as we're talking about 2008, 2009, you know, getting, us getting ready to graduate from high school. So back to the book. The weeks passed by quickly, and by July 5, 1965, Freddie was getting ready for the bus ride to the airport at San Antonio, where he would catch a flight to San Diego. He sat on the bed in his room after taking a shower and looked around at the posters on his wall. He looked through the window at the neighborhood, lifting the curtain. This town had been his home all his life. For a second, he felt like changing his mind. He didn't want to leave his mother and friends. Dolia knew that. But it was only for a second. His mind was firmly set on the Marine Corps and graduating from boot camp. Finally, he was packed and into the living room. Mom, I'm ready, he said. She emerged from the bathroom. She hugged him again with tears in her eyes. She took Freddy to the bus station, and the bus was already there. She looked in Freddie's gentle brown eyes the same way she did when he was a little boy, and the memories started. 
Now write to me, Freddy. I am going to miss you so much. I will be praying for you, she said. She handed him a little prayer book, and it had some money in it. So then, now he's off to boot camp. So obviously, I, I was not, I guess it might not be obvious if you don't, maybe haven't seen it, but I feel like the movies convey decently of what boot camp is. I mean, you, you'll never know unless you go, but the yelling, the screaming, it's all, it's, you know, even it's mentioned here in the book um, about that. You know, he gets off, the, he gets off, he then flies to San Diego, gets off, drill instructor's there, and the yelling begins, you know. So back to the book. Freddie was already in good shape physically from football, training over the years, and working hard most of his life. It was one less thing to worry about, but the real hard part was the mental aspect of boot camp. The DIs, drill instructors, were always playing mind games to see how smart and resilient and resourceful and mentally tough the guys were, especially at the beginning. It was like wolf puppies fighting to see who would be the pack leader later on. When combined with physical fatigue and lack of sleep with a DI screaming at you at 2 a.m. at a surprise inspection, screaming at you too quickly apart, take apart and reassemble your M14 rifle, the mind could get overwhelmed. But that prepared the recruits for the combat, at least theoretically. It was last it was at least separated the it at least separated the cooler headed recruits from the emotionally challenged leaders from followers, squared away from the screwed up. So this book or at least this little piece that I'm about to read, it just seems like he he picked up fast. Regardless of, of any type of obstacle, he picked up things fast and he was able to move. From the first two week from the first week or two, Freddie's leadership qualities were noted by his DIs. It was because even though he was struggling along with the rigid, r- relentless demands, he would take time to help out other guys to get squared away. Guys who were scared shitless, depressed, confused, not making the grade. And he had his own bad moments, but they didn't last long, and he managed to work around them. Where other guys would make fun of the screw-ups, Freddie might smile or laugh if something was funny, but he never humiliated anybody in a mean way. Instead, he would try to help if he could. Later, Marine officers said that was a great characteristic of Freddie's leadership skills. Tough but compassionate, never bullying anybody or making fun of them. Freddie was in Platoon 348 of the 3rd Recruit Training Battalion, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel P.H. Simpson. The drill instructor, also called the platoon commander, assigned to 348 was Sergeant K.H. Stoltz. His buddy Larry Gonzalez would graduate as the platoon honor man and series honor man as private first class or PFC. Larry Gonzalez, he was, he was a, it just mentions here that Larry Gonzalez was a friend from California who was his rackmate. He, he, I guess, basically bunked with him. I guess they had du- dual bunks, and Larry was the one who bunked with him during, during the boot camp process. So here it, it, it gives a glimpse of what's going on. Uh, obviously, 1965, there's the war going on in Vietnam. It, it's strong. Uh, I feel like because of the way the media, it, well, it maybe was at the time, you know, besides the information being gray, you know, the amount of content that compared to what we get now, you know, it was just, it was really small compared to what we get now. So back to the book. At that time, in summer of 65, American military intervention in the Vietnam War between North and South was beginning to heat up at a rapid rate, and President Johnson was making plans that would require as many Marines and soldiers as could be trained and shipped out. This was largely happening without the American public realizing it. 
the instructors and recruits had no time to ponder geo geopolitics, the right or wrong of Vietnam. They just had to the job to do. All Freddie could think about, besides his daily duties, was making it to the end and becoming a Marine. And training was very hard, as he had expected. He wrote to Dolia, and his letters reflected that. He also wrote to his two friends and family, and held on to his letters until they became too big of a pile to fit into his footlocker, and the DI told him to get rid of them. So he would send just a pile of letters every chance he could. His letters home reflected in his quiet moments a loneliness that was never out, of the, out in the open. He'd always hide it behind a smile and in an intense gaze while concentrating on difficult tasks. He did want to go home. Like everybody else, he was homesick at times. But more than that, he wanted to graduate. Finally, after 11 weeks of the worst hell the DIs could devise, he did just that. As one of the toughest warriors in the world, a defender of American ideals, he was an instrument of di diplomacy. He, he saw it as peace through strength, a Marine Corps motto. So then the DIs, because, and I think this goes basically for any, any branch where you go through the initial boot camp with Navy, Army, Air Force, Marines, they give you options. And I know in the Navy they call them billets. So like, let's say you want to work on a ship. Okay, you go, to, you get the billet from there and then you go do that. Navy SEALs, special ops, you do that, you know. Um, so that, that's what happens. So that's what happens. That's what's happening here. And he wanted to become rifleman here in the book it says after graduation di gave them all their assignments freddie had done well so he could have just about anything he wanted but his goal was to be a 0311 a rifleman in vietnam and that was exactly what he got after boot camp was over he had another four weeks of combat training at nearby camp pendleton he graduated from that on october 25 1965 and was then able to go home for some much anticipated leave time so finally, he gets to go back home. You know, he he'd already been homesick, as I mentioned. You know, he just, he was just ready. And I can, to me, I mean, my closest connection was just us being in Nashville for three weeks. And I had briefly, I had distinctly told you, and I, I know someone asked us when we were out in Dallas, saying like, "How do you guys feel about being on, being out for three weeks?" And and I, at that time, I was ready to be home. I'm like, let's assume we were on a tour. Cool, let's continue the tour. I'm down to continue the tour. But because I we knew that we were coming back home, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to be home then. You know, I'm ready to just sit down we, for a while. We were anticipating it. And uh, so, yeah, when we spent those three weeks in Nashville and then we came back to Texas and then I had a show and we had a show in Austin and then in Frisco and then in Dallas uh, the following days, uh, respectively. Yeah, it was just one of those. Like, yeah, let's do these shows, knock them out, get them done and get back on the road and get home. We even left... <laughs> Uh, the last one, so we played Dallas last, and then the next day we were able to go back home. Um, we're probably out to like what one in the morning, just about, and we left at five in the morning. Yeah, to get on the road. We're, we're, and everybody's like, "You're leaving that?" Like, "Yeah, we're we're ready. That's it. This we're is it. This is the last eight hour stretch to get home. Like, yeah. we're gonna be home. <laughs> we're ready to get there. Yeah, you know, basically a month out. All right, so he knew he was going to Vietnam, and. The way it seems here, you also have to travel. So they left, went to Hawaii, then from Hawaii to Japan, specifically Okinawa. That was in December 1965. And then from there, uh, they had, it says here in the book, he stayed in Okinawa for several weeks to get further training. And when time came to leave for Vietnam, it was by a Navy cargo plane that had a stopover at an airbase in the Philippines near Manila. 
That was the first real glimpse Freddie had of what Vietnam would be like. The colors were incredibly vibrant, the most beautiful green he'd ever seen. From the thick forest below and the water from nearby Subic Bay was a dark blue, like the sky. He would travel to the Philippines later on R&R, rest and relaxation time. So there, he's finally, and it, for me, it's, it's hard saying he's finally, because I, I never got to meet him, obviously. I mean, if anybody does have a, a precursor, or as far as like maybe, maybe some prior knowledge to, and I'm going to get to it, but uh, um, still saying out loud, and as, as I was reading, I'm like, how, how would I say this part? It's like, he, he, it's like, man, I, it feels like I got to, I get to know him a bit, you know, uh, considering obviously the time gap and even the, even the delay from reading this book, you know, I hadn't, had I not thought or think the way I think maybe leading up to this morning, you know, I wouldn't have read this book, you know, the podcast would have been something totally different. Anyways, back to the book. He was a rifleman in company L 3rd Battalion and 4th Marine Division. It was on that first 13-month tour of duty that he met another he met another South Texas boy, Sabino Garcia of South Texas, San Antonio, Texas. Sabino was a lance corporal in Freddy's unit and was able to show him the real facts of life in the jungle, far beyond the 4 weeks of combat training. I always told him to keep his rifle well oiled and to take good care of it because he would definitely be using it a lot, Sabino said. I liked Freddy a lot. He was a serious guy, and he would look right at you with a serious look. But Freddy was just a private learning the ropes with other new grunt marines looking for the enemy during, the first, during that first tour. He learned fast, and combat was obviously his element, Sabino said. Oh, this next piece, I'm, I'm going to read just because... To me, it's it's very detrimental, and you'll you'll I think you'll get it, Eddie, and I, I I'm pretty sure the listeners will get it too. But when I initially read this little paragraph, I was like, man, like I was able to make so many ties with it. It, it just made sense to me. Let me read it first. Vietnam is a small nation south of China. The word Vietnamese means non-Chinese people of the South. A hundred years before the birth of Christ, Vietnam became a part of the Chinese Empire. And for the next thousand years, Vietnam struggled for, struggled for its independence. And that was finally achieved in 938 A.D. The American war planners at the White House and the Pentagon were not properly schooled or sensitized to the importance of such details of Vietnam history. Not knowing how tough, determined, and intelligent the enemy was, as demonstrated through their thousand years of fighting, the Chinese would become a major problem for the Americans during the 12-year Vietnam War. Primary dot note is the word Vietnamese means non-Chinese people of the South. Yeah, I, um, that's very new information to me, very fresh. In that, man, like, it's kind of like, I, I don't want to say racist, but I mean, what else are you going to say? I don't know. I don't, it's something along it's those lines. Demeaning. It's demeaning. It's demeaning, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right, yeah. That puts a whole new perspective on, on, on that country and their people for me. Mm-hmm. And and I I tied it back into home in the sense of, uh, GT kids versus quote unquote non GT kids. It's like the kids know, you know, and and in our case with technology, because the, the way things are now, kids are giving up. 
for them, they fought for a thousand years. A thousand years, dude. Like, no one lives that long, but yet it was strong enough to they fought a thousand years to get what they wanted. And, um, and against the Chinese as well, like, um, arguably one of the, you know, I mean, obviously a superpower and, and a superpower in today's modern world, but kind of has always been, if, if not a forerunner of being a superpower, like, they've kind of j- just always been there. You know, they've been, they've been there. Yes. They've always been present in any type of conflict that's gone on in the world. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, I just wanted to mention that because it, it was just like, man, that's so derogatory. You know, I, I, I felt... I felt bad, you know. Yeah, we talk about not feeling bad for others, like in the sense of like you know, they obviously didn't feel bad. They they got angered, like no, we are people, we are a community, we are you know, we are a civilization that deserve our independence. You know, they they took it the complete dichotomy to feeling bad and used it you know for them to help them gain you know what they wanted their land. Oh man, it 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 helps me not feel bad for them, but yet fight harder. You know, just fight harder, do that. You know. Yeah. All right, back to the book. Freddie learned his job well, and he became an expert at locating and avoiding booby chaps, a critical skill in the field. Freddie Gonzalez could smell danger, so he was magic, one of Freddie's commanding officers would later say of him, as related through another sergeant. He and Sabino became good friends, and after Sabino rotated home, when his tour ended a few months after Freddie arrived, Freddie would write to him. First, he wrote him at home, then Sabino was sent to Camp Lejeune to train young Marines. They did not know it then, but in February 1967, they'd both be at Lejeune together as instructors. This, okay, so this is one of the letters that Freddie wrote to Sabino, and I, I thought it was pretty hilarious. So, how are you today or night? Me, I am still in paradise, the hospital with malaria. Freddie wrote to Sabino at his home on July 12, 1966. How many days do you have left? How's your mother? I bet she is very happy. And you wanted to stay at this miserable, miserable place for six more months, like the fool of Charlie. Uh, quick side note, Charlie is the enemy in the case of Vietnam. How's Bear? Freddie called Sabino's mean girlfriend, Bear, treating you. How does your stomach look? Are you fat now? Me, I have lost 20 pounds since I got sick. Well, Sabino, have to close now. Just a buddy who remembered you, Gonzalez. P.S. How about a Lone Star? Set him up, bartender. Another author's note. Freddie drew a can of Lone Star beer at the bottom of the letter. Okay, so uh, for everybody listening, I'm currently drinking Lone Star beer as we're doing this, and this was not planned at all. I'm just happen to walk in a Walker's, um, or Andy here's um, place with this Lone Star beer. He did not know I was bringing it. Man, that's... um. That's great. That uh, that little passage just put a big old smile on my face. Let me tell you why. Um, I feel like everybody's known, or I guess since. I mean, I think every generation since Freddie has known of Freddie Gonzalez, right? Because he's such a prominent um, memory staple, pretty much in this town. Right. Um, Andy, you were saying like they commemorated a street name after him, and like you know, an elementary school and uh, a park and so many things. And so we're very aware of his story. And uh, for anyone listening that's not, uh, I mean, I, I feel like the story is still developing if you don't know the <laughs> yeah. complete story. But, um, and I'm, I'm assuming you're going to get there. Mm-hmm. But he's just such a staple in this town. And I feel like growing up, um, you know, we know about it and we're told about it and we're told that he was a hero, but we don't, we don't get told, or at least I didn't get told, um, 
anything much else beyond that, just that he's an American hero. He's a hero to the town, you know? And it's obvious with the street and the, and the school and, and the park and et cetera, et cetera. But that letter just revealed so much about his character, you know? And, like, the way he teases his friend and causes his friend's girlfriend, Bear, and, like, <laughs> yeah. so many things. And it, it puts a big smile on my face because there's such a human element to it. And um, and it it just like it, it sets up this character that you know I've known about Freddie Gonzalez ever since I could remember like anything you know growing up here in Edinburgh. But it, it's just like it it's like if I was watching a you know a white and black movie and all of a sudden just a, a little splash of color came on. It was very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah when I read this, I I I literally laughed out loud because I was like. How's Bear? And then I read the, the little parentheses part, you know, Sabino's girlfriend, mean girl, specifically Bear, Sabino's mean girlfriend. Yeah. You know, like, I was like, man, that, that, and the, the cool part, it, you know, because it just, for me, it just ties back to what Jocko talked about, some of the stories, because he sometimes make it, makes it a point to mention some humorous parts in the stories. You know, there's a dark part, but then these guys that were out in war, and this is, obviously it's universal, where, you know, you had to have that moment of just, laugh you know you need to yeah I mean, it's just it's just you you it's needed you know it's not that you whether you want it or not sometimes it's just needed you know for for all intents and purposes i think um i think that's something that gets lost in translation very easily it's not anyone's fault i don't think but you know we have this holiday set up memorial day and and i feel like people get a lot of flack for you know we're going to use the three-day weekend and go to the beach or go do this go out of town or do whatever right and um and, you know, and then, you know, I feel like it always surfaces up around this time of year with Memorial Day. It's like, oh, don't forget, it's not a holiday where you just get to, you know, cook hot dogs or barbecue or whatever and then go to the beach. Like, this is, you know, a holiday to remember, you know, those who sacrificed the, the greatest, the greatest thing of all, you know, and then for our liberties and for our freedoms in this country. And so I feel like that's been pounding in really hard lately, but at least like the last few years that I've been paying attention but, uh, you know, like, no one ever really knows these people, these, you know, these people that we call heroes, but we don't really know them, mm -hmm. you yeah. know? There's no, you know, there's not a lot of resources for us to, you know, look at the vast number of, of, uh, of soldiers and, and servicemen who have sacrificed their lives for the greater good of this country and for the greater good of our liberties. And, you know, there's just not a lot of resource to, you know, other than maybe, you know, you might have a family member here and there that serves or or maybe your great grandfather served and, and passed and during a wartime or, 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 you know, maybe like some kind of small family tie connection mm -hmm. like that. Right. But other than that, I mean, there's really no vivid picture of, of who these people are right. for us to look at. And I feel like it's, again, no one's fault, but it just gets lost in that translation. And just, man, thank God we have books like this that are written and, you know, just express very vividly um, a, a portrait of, of someone's character and how they were, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just going to go back to the book. Um, go for we'll, it. We'll continue. This was, I believe this is the last letter that Freddie wrote to Sabino. Here's back to the book. And finally, on January 1, 1967, he wrote, How's everything going down there? Everything is just fine here. Not too much action. I made corporal about two weeks ago. 
I also got my orders. I'm waiting for a flight date. I'm going to Camp Lejeune. I might be in the 6th or 8th Marines. I hope it's the 8th Marines. Thervino got hit with a mine. He got it right in the groin. He is back in the stage now. He is alright. I hate going to Lejeune. Some of the new guys here knew Gutierrez and you. One of them is named Holguin. How did your operation come out? See you later at Lejeune. Your friend, Fred. And so, let me pause again. So, Holguin is... I'm not, I'm not going to mention the first name, but that's the last name of uh, one of Brian's frat brothers who's in the reserves. All right, let me continue. Freddie usually had only two requests in, the le in his letters home to Dolia, and they were simple. Send Kool-Aid and cookies. By the time the packages arrived, he opened them to find the cookies were smashed or crumbled, but it was good anyway. And the Kool-Aid was coveted like gold. And it was always good. He liked the pre-sweetened kind. And he would put it in his canteen and drink two or three quarts of it a day in the hot jungles of Vietnam. Carefully placing the empty wrappers in his pocket so as not to leave any traces of trash behind for the enemy to find. Whatever Dolia could send him from home was always greatly anticipated. Because the military food used on patrols, sea rations, normally tasted bland especially compared to the MREs, meals ready to eat, used by the modern military. But it wasn't that bad if you were hungry. Canned breads, meat patties, ham and beans, and scrambled eggs. You'd have to put a few drops of water on the bread and heat it up on the sternope can to revive it from long incarceration. The gusto was called peaches and pound cake. I just want to read that because of the Kool-Aid and cookies. Uh, I know for a time when I was in college... I did have a couple of pen pals, and eventually it, it, it kind of died out. And at, I, I would now say at my fault, you know, because I, I did send out care packages for a good while. And I still do, I do still donate to the foundation, but I haven't sent out a care package. Um, it's actually, they're based out of San Antonio. It's called uh, uh, Soldiers Angels. They're based out of San Antonio, and I donate every month. But, uh, but yeah, like the, you know, Kool-Aid and cookies. Mm, all those carbs, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to the book. Finally, in January 1967, he was on his way back home after a brief stopover with a buddy in Arizona. He arrived in Edinburgh on 30 days leave, and one of the first things he thought to himself, as he later told his friends, was, I have seen some things I don't ever want to see again. I will never go back to Vietnam. I've had enough. When Freddie arrived in Edinburgh, after the end of his first tour, he was wearing the rank of corporal. He was already a seasoned veteran of combat, and there he was again, at a place that once seemed as distant as the moon, his dear old Edinburgh. He stepped off the bus to smell the clean, cold, humid air of the valley, and he breathed it in deeply. He hoisted the green sea bag on his shoulder and started walking home, carrying a prized possession in his pocket that he never let go of in Vietnam, a key to the house. It was a good luck charm for him. Later, Dolia would say that it was the same Freddy that was something a little, there was something a little bit different about him that she couldn't describe. Of course, the gruesome nature of his experience naturally would have an effect on him, but it was more than that. Freddy had that thousand yard stare that a lot of veterans had, a sort of detachment 
from being in the bush of a long time. And he had been slightly dinged a few times, which meant he had been wounded, in his case, by bullet fragments or, or shrapnel. And he'd had malaria and spent some time in the hospital. After boot camp was over, over Freddie found he'd gained about 20 pounds, but after the jungle time and the malaria, the sweat and the heat and stress, he'd lost about 30. He was thinner when Dolia saw him in January 1967 than when he'd left. So many things there is uh, like coming home that we at we hear about it now, and I think that's one of those things that I'll say thanks to the media, you know, allowing veterans to get that word out, and uh, so that people can be aware. Because I, I think that's part of the biggest thing. Is, and going back to your statement, Eddie, as far as you know, if you have members in the military versus those who don't at all, like not even like in my case, where it's very distant, right? As far as time timeline wise. But being that detached, having an opinion on a matter, and but but your ma- I'm not saying the matter isn't worthy of fighting for, or your opinion is not worthy of fighting for. But if you can consider being a detached from the situation, then I think you would be maybe less harsh. You you would be. I don't even want to say willing to compromise, but you'd be more understanding. Period, which might change your 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 direction anyways. You know, compared to. Um, like, oh, not even compared to anything. Compared to then going full on like, oh, anti-war or something, and yet you have no one in the military to, or you haven't even asked communication general. Like, let's just go to the, to the bottom line of communication and talking and asking questions. Um, I'm gonna go back to the book. Over the next 30 days at home, the only time Freddie even looked at his uniform was when he took it off that first night before going to bed. When he hung it in his closet, he shoved it to the side, out of sight, and pushed his regular clothes against it so he couldn't see it. He wanted nothing to remind him of the war. He'd seen so many things. Death, chaos, corruption of the South Vietnamese soldiers, severe fear, innocent civilians getting caught in the crossfire between the U.S. and the North Vietnamese. And like most everybody else, except maybe for the inner city gang members who'd been drafted prior to the Vietnam War, the worst Freddie had seen was playing football, boxing a little, and having schoolyard-type fights. But he'd never seen real death face-to-face, breathing down on him like a tornado of fire. The whirling winds of battle that kept turbulence brewing in his brain for weeks and months later. And a lot of other Marines like him had the same problem. So having that, that darkness that, that only few people will ever, will ever experience. Is it too soon to get into something that stuck with me that Jordan Peterson said about PTSD? Go ahead. No. Um, on the Joe Rogan episode, he was talking a lot about the nature of man. And then he kind of dived into why um, soldiers um, have P- uh, PTSD when they come home. And um, it's because they've realized the violent nature that they're capable of and that their fellow men are capable of. And it creates that dissonance and. I don't know, like, it uh, is one of those things that seems obvious to you when it's, like, you know, when he says it, but it, but it doesn't at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, like, one of those things that's, like, I feel like I, I knew the underlying source of that in the back of my mind, but I've never fully connected that thought. Right. At least for me, personally. Maybe right. you have. Um, but, I don't know. It's just uh, something I had to mention yeah. with that well, passage Because c- c- it goes back to the, we talk about primal, that, that, you know, those instincts that, 
that maybe you're not conscious about it, but when you hear, especially someone like Jordan Peterson, that we do have a trust in his, you know, in his information and his work research. So when he says something like that, that it goes back to all these variables, it's like, dang, it's such a simple answer, but yeah, it's so hard to convey because you don't see it unless you go to war. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Not. 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 Not too soon. Not too soon. You're good. So here's some light. Still, with it all, he felt euphoric about being back home. But during the course of his time there, he found out his girlfriend had changed her mind about getting engaged, and they decided not to pursue the relationship. It broke his heart, his friend said. Well, I guess it was half and half, because he was euphoric about being home, but yet... And this was, I mean, well, I've never... I mean, I guess I've never asked my aunt, like, these questions, but I've also know how much it what it means to her i mean this is her son you know her only son so maybe that's why i've never been driven to ask questions and hopefully you know given this book you know gives everybody not just me some insight on you know thought processes of a single parent with a child going to war he didn't talk about much of the war he didn't he did not talk much about the war dolia said just what it was like out there on patrol living conditions, the terrible heat, the humid air, the mosquitoes, and there was snakes, monkeys, and tigers. And he would have nightmares while at home. And he would scream out in the middle of the night. That scared me, and I worried about him. He was going through hell. But still, he worried about his buddies over there that he had left behind in Vietnam. He called me one day, and he said he was going, never going back. But then later, he got a letter from somebody back in Vietnam, also who told him that some guys was with him, had gotten blown away in an ambush, and he felt he could have kept them alive, said J.J. Avila. Then he started to change his mind, and when he said he was planning to go back to Vietnam, we all told him that he'd done his duty. He should definitely not go back. Freddie was always, to me, an overachiever. If he would not have been a hero in the military, I believe he would have been a hero here at home. Being the only child with no father, he could have gotten a de deferment to stay out of Vietnam. Way down deep, we all knew that he wanted to get some money to give to his mom so she could have a better life, Avila said. Here we are, 38 years later, and she is still living in the same kind of life, still having to work because her son is not here. After Freddie got the letter from his buddy about the ambush, he walked outside and went for a long walk. He did not speak, but he told Dolia later that he could see the faces of his friends who had been wiped out. He could smell the gunpowder that clouded the stagnant, stagnant jungle air after the, a firefight. He could hear the shrill screams of men in terrible pain, men who would not make it back to base alive, young faces that would never see whiskers or wrinkles or a wife or children. They were like a garden of beautiful flowers cut down before fully blooming by a madman with a machete. So he's still, he, he's not necessarily contemplating with my aunt, but he's trying to flank, kind of ease her into it. So here we go. Dolia tried to plead with Freddy, telling him, those guys were your friends, I know, but they're gone. You can't bring them back. Maybe you can help other guys to avoid the same thing, but you've done your duty. 
Listen to your friends. You don't have to go back. But Freddy first had to spend some time at Camp Lejeune, where he knew he'd volunteer for another tour. He didn't tell Dolia it was definite until he was at Lejeune. So yeah, I mean, it was it was just foreseen. And and I didn't I didn't know about the letter. I knew. I mean, my aunts always said like you know he 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 chose to go back, which ultimately is his decision. But this letter, you know, that's interesting. You know, I think I think I'd do the same thing. I mean, I I think you'd be so emotionally attached that you'd you'd make that decision to go back. I think. When you're in it that much, yeah, I think so too. I think that's what I would do. Not that I would ever, I think, enlist because I just can never seem to put on a pound of muscle. So <laughs> you will, you would, <laughs> you would. Uh, there's actually some interesting. I'll have to get them to you, Eddie. Uh, there's some good uh, stories. Uh, of guests that have been on Jocko podcast, specifically one guy, he's I think he's like five seven. He's about my height, you know. Now he's a stern, you know, one eighty five, two hundred pounds. I'm like, okay, cool. It made me feel good about like, okay, if it, if the, if the need rises and I don't feel so bad, even Jocko. I, I mean, Jocko's not that tall, but he started at like let's say one seventy five, one eighty, and now he's at two twenty. I mean, he put on, he put on, he put it on, bro. <laughs> yeah, if anyone did, he did for sure. Because <laughs> he he even mentions like when he was on the ship. In the early years, in the quote unquote dry years of his of his uh, uh, military service, that you know he was already on like the low, low like low to no carb like eating style. So he said like the ship would like serve chicken nuggets, and he'd get like a mountain of chicken nuggets, and just he would force feed himself because he needed like the he wanted the fuel so that he could then go to work out and do whatever he needed to do. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's always that. <laughs> Man, I've uh, I've got more to comment about all this, but I feel like we should. Uh should get to the last of your bullet points for this um, for this reading here first. Are you sure? Yeah, let's get back to it. Okay. Back to the book. This was July 1967, and after spending several miserable months at Lejeune, he was finally headed where he felt destiny wanted him to be, in the real shit. He was made for it. He'd been promoted to sergeant earlier in July at Camp Pendleton for his excellent record and abilities. And with Company A of the 1st Marine Battalion, 1st Marines, 1st Division, in a base camp about 40 miles south of Dainung. Day Day it was there he met Manuel Valdez, another Mexican-American from Texas. The two became buddies. Valdez is now a judge at, in Tarrant County, Texas, and he, was held, and he has held the post for 25 years. I was in Vietnam from the latter part of September 1966 to October 1967. And we were in the same division, but I was a radio operator and later a forward observer. I met Freddie at the beer hooch where a lot of the guys would go. Us Mexicanos would kind of gather together, Valdez said. Guys would come up, come and go, and we'd drink and laugh, and then you never saw them again. You never knew what happened to them. Didn't even know their names a lot of times. Nobody ever went into anything planning to be a hero, but people were doing heroic acts all the time when nobody was looking. So nobody ever knew about it. A lot of times you just have to get killed to be a hero. How about that? For example, if a guy jumped on a grenade to save his buddies, but it didn't explode, then it doesn't mean anything. But the guy was still just as heroic. He didn't know it was a dud. Those things happen fre frequently. But I am proud of what Freddy did. I have absorbed all of this, and I appreciate it. This guy... We laughed and talked together, shared beers together, and much later I found out about what he did. Freddy was a rifleman, a squad leader, and was expert at his job. 
Valdez was a radio operator and photo observer because I knew how to read maps and call in rounds. I went to all four companies, A, B, C, and D. I remember when I went from being a radio operator to being a forward observer. It was Christmas, Christmas Eve, 1966. They shot my forward observer, so I took on that responsibility. What happened is we walked into an ambush. We went on to go and clear out an area and patrol it. We were not a full platoon out on patrol. We were not a full platoon out on patrol. That part was just, I just wanted to mention, you know, another, you know, person that knew Freddie, you know, and as far as war and forward, you know, not, you know, like J.J. Avila, Coach, Coach Vela, you know, they knew him before, you know, before the war. That's a very interesting thought about how um, maybe you're not considered a hero until the actual, you know, the, the actual action of becoming the hero is uh, prefaced by your death, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Your sacrifice. Yep. That's, um, man, that sounds kind of morbid to me. But I, I can only relate it to the, to the way I know how, which is uh, music legends, you know? Like, some of the greatest ones have, have died in their prime. Uh, man. <sighs> like, I'm trying to think of the ones that, I mean, Keith Whitley, for one. Mm-hmm. Well, dude, didn't Greg Allman just passed away. Greg Allman just passed away. He was only 69. Um, Prince definitely still had many more years left. David Bowie had definitely more than a few. Uh, Merle Haggard seemed like he was never going to die. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, and uh, Guy Clark kind of the same. But, I mean, it, regardless, they were all kind of older. But yeah. there have been a lot of well, young well, Kurt, uh, um, Kurt Cobain. You're, 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 yes, yes, exactly. I mean, that's what I was going to say. <sighs> Chris Cornell recently. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that one, that's a big one, yeah. I think, especially for now. Uh, yeah. Um, man, it's just uh, it's kind of sad. And um, I hate that I'm about to quote Def Leppard. Like this is this feels like the dumbest quote of Def Leppard ever. Like, but uh, anyway, I forget the song. But what is it? It's one of the lines in one of their songs. It's better to burn out than fade away, mm. or something like that. I, there's actually a well, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say a few songs, but that definitely sounds familiar to me. But it's a is it an, is it a Neil Young song or uh, where it's like you know it's better to, it's better to burn out than to rust. Okay. Something like that, and uh, I got that quote from Don because Han- Don Hanley quoted that uh, whoever that songwriter he got it from. But it's t- similar to what you're saying, yeah, I mean, I can, Steve, I can see that. Yeah. Steve Ray Vaughan died in his prime. Jimi Hendrix died in his prime. Yeah. And all those people are, I mean, legends, you know, and they're heroes. They're mythical creatures because of their early passing. It's I don't know. It's it's an unfortunate reality almost. It's like, where does it come from? I don't even know if that's the right question to ask, but that's like the question that comes to mind. Like, where does it come from? Like, how do we, how does, you know, how does this happen where we build these people up in that way that when they die so young, they, they become these mythical creatures. Selena, yeah. another one yeah, that, that would her, be. That's a great example. Yeah, that would be Especially local. Especially for South Texas, we'll say for South Texas. Yeah, it's one that would be local. Freddie Fender. Freddie Fender, yeah. Just, I guess, something to ponder about for now, but mm-hmm. no, yeah, we like, definitely. Ma- maybe we don't spend enough time appreciating what we have while we have it. Now, and that's very stoic. It's like today, now, yeah. Like, and we we we'll go off on that tangent maybe later. But I maybe. think I feel like we've we've touched those things a lot. Every time we, you know, we always end up with some type of macro dealing with time and making sure you value, you know, you value your time and whatnot. But uh, yeah, in in, the, in our case, as far as music goes, like it's still 
near it's near and dear to us because it's important to us. You know that, that's that's what we're, that's what me and Eddie are revolving our careers around. You know, regardless of what everybody else is doing or what everybody else thinks, like this this is our this is part of our world. You know, like these guys, these military guys, uh, the guys mentioned here in this book, Jocko, Leif, Tim Kennedy, uh, David Burke, all these guys that are out there. You know, doing you know they chose. We're all choosing. We're all going. We're all moving. All right, back to the book. After he made the rank of sergeant, Freddy took on more responsibility and felt great about it. So did the men who followed him. The war was getting hotter, the enemy more resolved and tricky, mingling more with the South Vietnamese civilians and making it tough to know enemy from friend. Being a sergeant was special for Freddy because the Marines taught him what it meant from a historical perspective to help instill in him the proper level of pride and sense of importance in his new rank. He'd only been in the Marines for a little more than two years and he'd already gone from private to private first class to lance corporal to corporal to sergeant a rapid rise in the ranks the military has defined defined the sergeant as a hard father lone hero best friend achieving the rank was a real milestone in a man's career it was a clear sign that he could lead he would be following in the footsteps of le legendary u.s military sergeants such as alvin york from world war one audie murphy from world war ii among many other great ones, those are two wars, and since then we've had Vietnam, the Korea, uh, the Gulf, then we have Afghanistan, Iraq, like all those unnamed guys. And to tell in Memorial Day, that's why we have Memorial Day. All right, back to the book. A good sergeant has to be aggressive, self-confident, optimistic, the leader out in front in encountering the enemy. In Vietnam, many of them were 20 or 21 years old, making life and death decisions. And they had to deal with the death of their own men. Infantrymen know another old saying, generals plan wars, sergeants win them. Freddie divided his time in the first several months of his second tour between several areas of Vietnam, spending what seemed like endless hours and days in the bush on patrol. So this is... Uh, he ended up being part of a Tet Offensive, and I wish I had more details because I, I know I've definitely read it in another book, the Tet Offensive. So it's interesting, like that tale. And so far, the, the name never came up in this book. Uh, I believe it was uh, Colonel David Hackworth, who also served in Vietnam. Uh, he was specific, he was also involved in the Tet Offensive, which was this big. Uh, uh, what's the what's the proper word? Conflict. It was part of the, it was one of the main conflicts at the time, in Vietnam. The Tet Offensive started on January 21, 1968 when 40,000 North Vietnamese Army troops attacked 6,000 Marines in Khe Sanh. General Ms. Westmoreland, commander of all troops in Vietnam, ordered air battalions to try and pummel the enemy troops into submission. With 100,000 ton tons of bombs dropped over a period of several weeks, it averaged one airstrike every five minutes. About 10,000 enemy soldiers died, and about 500 American troops were killed. Even today, four decades after the horrendous destruction, vegetation is still slow to grow around the large area that was the Marine camp of Quezon. White phosphorus from artillery, artillery rounds continued to smolder the intense summer heat. So biggest thing about numbers is 40,000 versus 6,000, then uh, 10,000 enemy soldiers died. Uh, some of those, and I think it's specifically a Tet Offensive because like it was mentioned in the uh, Colonel David Hackworth book, where some of those some of those were not accurate numbers, and and I wondered like the depth of this guy's because, like I said, I I tr 
want to trust the rest of it, but when when numbers are given, when data like that's given, that I've already read of this is this is what was officially reported versus what actually occurred, and some of the, like where let's say sergeants and the guys who were on the, on the ground really knew what was going on. The guys out in the helicopters that weren't the best leaders with their guys were giving like bogus numbers, dude. And half the time, and Jocko text, talked about this. Uh, Jocko talks about this. Colonel David Hackworth, Colonel Hackworth talks about this, where um, a lot of times there, a lot of times there wasn't even an enemy to shoot because of booby traps. There's booby traps. There's all these things that didn't involve an actual. So it, it, there was no one to shoot, and it mentions here in the, in the story already briefly where you know you can tell civilians from the enemy, and it talks about that. You know you're, you're you're fighting in rice paddies. People harvest rice paddies. There's people out there. And I know I think it was in that book, uh, Steal My Soldier's Hearts by Colonel David Hackworth, where he mentions that, or at least maybe one of the soldiers talks about where, like, the local, the civilians had to have been helping them, you know, because how could they not step in a boo trap, you know, but yet every time Americans would come through with a, with a platoon or a group of soldiers, um, they'd happen to be the only guys to step on a platoon, on a booby trap and then, you know, get, or die or get killed. Super crazy. Because those are big numbers, 10,000, you know, 40,000 troops assumed, I'm, I'm going to say assumed, and 10,000 enemy soldiers killed. It's like, okay, like, I, it's just a big question mark because of other books, like I said, given. So then the book uh, inputs little conversations of, uh, that were happening at the White House, and I'm not, I'm not going to read them all, but basically at the end, I will read the last one, at the end... Senator Lausch, I'll say that, L-A-U-S-C-H-E. He was part of the Foreign Relations Committee. And I'm, I'm just going to read what he wrote because I think you'll, you'll get it. Mr. President, as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, I find myself in this dilemma. The Foreign Relations Committee of the Senate is engaged in intense activity to prove that we should have not engaged in firing in the Tonkin Bay response to alleged enemy action against U.S. warships that initiated U.S. military action in Vietnam. In my opinion, those who are prosecuting this view, and I want to repeat vigorously that the United States government was completely in the wrong on the Tonkin Bay developments. Post facto, judgment is supposedly pertinent, and I want to warn Secretary McNamara that he was that he is to be called and to be demonstrated to have misled the nation into improper use of military forces in Tonkin Bay. And for me, that's just like a whole kind of worms that led, you know, then led to the rebelliousness of halfway through Vietnam to the end of Vietnam, you know, just where everybody was, once they found out about the Gulf of Tonkin, because I, I think that came out after the war started, like, hey, wait a minute, Gulf of Tonkin, like, what the heck was going on there? And I remember, man, it had to be, I want to say it was eighth grade history where I think we went over Vietnam. And I remember the Gulf of Tonkin being mentioned, but it was only mentioned. You know, we're like, oh, this is where the war started, blah, blah, You know, regardless of what our teacher knew or didn't know, um, reading this, it took me back to that because that was my first introduction to Vietnam War, I would say. Uh, at, least a, at least a good debriefing of what was going on. But the Gulf of Tonkin, I think that's a very big controversial point. So here, it's, uh, they're going on a uh, <clears throat> patrol. 
there in uh it says now this is this is from the book now on the morning of the 4th of february this is for february 4th its first objective was the Joan of Arc school and church only about 100 yards away according to smith the building was square with an open compound in the middle and we found by about 0700 that it was heavily occupied Smith's Marines found themselves engaged in not only building-to-building, building, but room-to-room room combat against a determined enemy. Lieutenant Colonel Gravel remembered that in the co Covent building, in these little cloisters that the ladies live in, we went wall-to-wall. Wall. One Marine would place a plastic C4 charge against the wall and stand back, and then a fire team would rush through the resulting ga gaping hole. In the school building, Sergeant Gonzalez... Third platoon secured one wing, but came under enemy, enemy rocket fire across from the courtyard. The Marine sergeant dashed to the window and fired about 10 LAAWs to silence the enemy. A B-40 rocket shattered the grilled pane and struck Gonzalez in the stomach, killing him instantly. The truth not included in the official report was that Freddy did not die right away. He lived for perhaps 15 or 20 minutes semi-conscious for, for most of that time. Lieutenant Smith credited Gonzalez for taking out key rocket positions before he was killed. Sergeant Gonzalez was later awarded the Medal of Honor for both his actions here and on January 31. On the morning Freddy was killed, Dolia didn't sleep well. I was in church February 4th, had gone to Mass and had to leave the church to go outside. I kept coughing like something was choking me. So I left to go outside because it was cool outside. This friend of mine took me to church. I got back and she asked, and she pushed me and asked, Why did you do that? I said, I don't know. Not knowing that was the same time my son was dying, she said. I felt like something had happened to Freddie. I just knew something was wrong. And I had not received any letters from him for a while. I used to send, I used to run to my mother's house in the afternoons to see if he'd send a letter. Soon, she started getting letters back that she'd mailed to him, marked, returned to sender. A few days after that strange feeling, a Marine sergeant in dress uniform with a local police officer came to the city cafe in Edinburgh, where Dolia was working, to inform her of Freddie's death. I knew, it, I knew it the minute I saw them. It's strange because I had eaten lunch that day, and I never eat lunch. And I saw them coming, she said. I just knew. I knew that day at the church. In, my, in, in, in an interview many years later for National Public Radio, Lieutenant Smith would recall his impressions of Gonzalez, one of the only enlisted men respected enough to be asked in on the officer's poker games. I told Gunnery Sergeant Canley to go relieve Sergeant Gonzalez after he'd been wounded. He told me, Lieutenant, I will go and follow Sergeant Gonzalez around if you order me to, but Sergeant Gonzalez is still in charge of the platoon, Smith said with a slight chuckle. So even with a wound, you know, he's, he's still the leader. Even after all these years, I remain in awe of Sergeant Gonzalez. In my mind, I've always thought of him as one of the big guys. He just seemed older than everybody else. But not long ago, I found an old photo of me and Gonzalez standing together, and I was very surprised to see that I was a lot bigger physically than he was. He wasn't that big, probably 5'10", 165 pounds. But he will always be one of the big guys to me. One of the 3rd Platoon's 
two Navy corpsmen was 25-year-old Jim Okonski. He was a senior in college studying music theory and composition, then pre-dental. When the realization hit him that I knew I'd be drafted, so I tried to volunteer for the Air Force, he said with a laugh, that didn't pan out first, and I didn't want the Army. But in the meantime, he was snatched up by the Navy, and in boot camp, he received official notification that he'd been accepted by the Air Force. Just my luck, he said. The last thing Okansky wanted to be, what wanted was to be in combat with the Marines. But in the Navy, he was found to have the aptitude for a corpsman, the battlefield paramedics attached to the, uh, attached to the Marine platoons. I was issued a 45 automatic, but the guys found an M1 carbine with a banana clip, and I carried it, carried that for protection. I was the first one to get with Freddy after he got hit. Even though it's been 38 years, it's been 38 years ago, that image is still on the forefront of my mind. Okansky said, "At the time, I found out he was hit and went to take care of him." A Marine said, "Corman up," and that meant for me to come up there. It was dark in the room, like at night and the shells exploding around us were like lightning strikes. I got there right away. He had been hit by an RPG and was in two pieces. His legs were in one part of the room, a little room, about 12 feet wide and 12 feet long, and his torso had been separated from his legs. The first thing I did was I propped him up in the corner and gave him morphine. His entrails were hanging from the ceiling. He'd been blown up at the midsection, but he was cognizant. He was nodding his head at me and mumbling something. He was saying something, but I couldn't understand. I knew him personally, and I know he was just acknowledging that I was there and recognizing the fact that he knew he was a goner. I knew he was a Catholic, and I am a Catholic. And I leaned over and whispered the Lord's Prayer in his ear. And I got to, give us our daily bread. And a shell exploded nearby, he said. I knew I had to get out of there. He was still alive. But when I got to the door... Another one of our corpsmen met me at the door, and we went, we went in to help out. For years, I felt guilty about leaving him, leaving him there and had to get counseling. But my logic was that if I had been killed, I wouldn't have been any good to anybody else. Finally, 30 years later, I could stop repressing that and got in touch with some of my old comrades. Dolia Gonzalez, when told about what really happened to her son during the writing of this book, said that it took a good said it took great courage for Okansky to even run into that room under those terrible conditions. I think he is very brave, she said. That was a terrible place to be. Shortly after treating Freddy, Okansky was wounded by an enemy grenade explosion in the University of Hugh. I was trying to get shrapnel out of a wounded Marine and picked up shrapnel myself. Eleven of us got hit. One of the guys looked at my boot and said, Hey, Doc, there's blood coming out of your shoe. I was medevaced out with the rest, and they sent me to an army hospital in Yokohama, Japan. Then I was later sent stateside to the Naval Air Station Hospital in Corpus Christi. I was in the Navy from 1966 to 1970. When I got hit at Hugh, I was one of 15 out of 150 of the A-11 left, which is the 1st Marines, 1st uh, Division 1st Marines. Oh, for, sorry, 1st first Battalion of the 1st Marines. The rest were killed or wounded, he said. I have to say, I was scared shitless too. It's funny, those Marines looked at me as an old man, and I was 25. I was a friend, a, peace, a priest, a corpsman, a father, and mother. For example, sometimes the guys would ask me, because I had almost four years of college, 
to write love letters to propose to their girl. That type of thing, he said. February 4, 1968. Sergeant Gonzalez was the 5th Edinburgh War casualty. All five were Mexican-American Marines. He received his first tour of duty March 1966. Concluded the tour in January 1967, but volunteered for a second tour in June 1967. He was a member of Company A, 1st Battalion, 1st Marine Division. On January 31, just four days before her son's death, his mother, Dole Gonzalez, received word that Freddie had been decorated with the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry with gold for achievements in support of the armed forces in Vietnam in their struggle against communist insurgents. A sixth, sol sixth soldier, Nolan Simmons, was killed two days after Gonzalez. She was notified after her son's death on Monday, February 12, while at work. It was a busy lunch crowd. The next day, students at Edinburgh High School paused for a moment of silence to honor Freddie. The flag at the high school flew at half-mast Tuesday and on the day of the funeral. By this time, Freddie's old Texas friend from the platoon in Hugh, Eliseo Hernandez, was back home in Corpus Christi. One morning, his mother came to his room and told him that there was a woman at the door named Dole Gonzalez. She had driven up from Edinburgh because she wanted to be sure what happened to her son, Hernandez said. I will never forget that. According to the military press report, his body had been transferred to the 3rd Medical Battalion for transfer to the States. Gonzalez's cousin and former teammate at EHS, Army Private First Class Arturo Shorty Garza, will accompany the body to Edinburgh. On February 22, 1968, Freddie's body arrived with Sergeant Jack Jenkins departing San Francisco on American Airlines Flight 38, February 22, 1968, at 11.20 a.m. Arrived Brownsville on Braniff Flight 297 at 9.58 p.m., according to a release from Commandant 8th Naval District. Dolia had, Dolia had Freddie's casket taken to her home to spend one last night before the funeral proceedings, and Sergeant Jenkins would stand guard beside the casket outside the home and later at the funeral home. At the funeral mass Monday, February 26, the Reverend Joseph Lyons, priest at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Edinburgh, told Dolia, Don't ask why you are so lonely now, Dolia. He died for what he believed. He died a hero. Perhaps his death at a later time would not have been like this. Today, he is a hero. Reverend Charles Morin, Freddie's childhood religion director, officiated the solemn mass. I am honored to have the privilege to serve in this matter. Freddie was one of my boys. So, detaching from the book for a second. Obviously, the, the funeral continues. Um, he was buried or is buried at Hillcrest Memorial Cemetery, which is on that side of the expressway. If you know, uh, Schoenier turns into Richardson. That There's a, uh, what's it called? I can't even think of it right now. What's it called? An underpass. No, 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 no. What's that? Cem cemetery. I couldn't think of cemetery. So I'm, I'm like, I'm like <laughs> not, I'm like not even, I'm just thinking about Hillcrest Memorial. Oh, cemetery. Duh, right. So anyways. So that, that's where he was buried. And I, I, I do remember going back in the day, like when I was younger, when I, quote, unquote, wasn't busy, 
And we'd go out there and put American flags on some of the... Because there's actually a lot of soldiers out in that cemetery. I don't know if people know that or not. But there's plenty. Because I remember taking flag after flag after flag. And we would just, we would just place them next to, the, next to the tombstone. Or the, the headstone. Well, John continues. He, he after... He, I mean, he finishes with this. Basically, that's the closing where this last part um, that I read was a statement made by Major General M.C. Fonikins, 1st Marine Division Commanding Officer. Um, basically, that final letter, home, he was the one who, who did that. And that's what I read. And I, that's what I read in, in addition to what the priests said and uh, also is a religion director. Or Freddie's religion director. So then John goes into what I what I've, I've already briefly mentioned it. We're just we're, like the process it took him to to get my aunt to to get the interview to to bring to put the story on paper. Um, I'm not gonna find how long it took, but it took a while because he said he would go to lunch every day, and finally it just happened where they ran into each other. Like actually, you know, where I guess he sat intersection maybe involuntarily, and she happened to wait on him and. He, by this time, he had already known his story. So, as opposed to saying, "Hey, I'm from the monitor, can I have your story?" Hi, Dol, you know how you doing it? You know, approaching as a human being, not with a not with a goal in mind. You know, trying to trying to have a conversation, which I mean, maybe in his case, he has a end goal, but it, it's to bring the story to life. Like you're saying, you know, these details that he's able to that he did portray in the story, right. uh, he's able to do that, and it took him a while. And this started in the fall of 1994, and this book was released in 2006. So it took that long. And actually, I think 1994 was when the ship officially got, uh, I, I'm just going to say indoctrinated. I don't know what the fir- proper term is, but they, we had the ceremony. I remember going to that ceremony. I was, I was three years old, four years old. And we were in, because they did, they did it out of the Naval Base Station in Corpus so that my, like it was easier for my aunt and that's it, you know. Now it's, now it's, it's neat. They, they fly my aunt, you know, they fly her out to Norfolk because that's where the, that's where that ship is stationed specifically. It's not in the San Diego uh, base it's in the norfolk virginia base so i know at least once a year they have like basically they have her out for three four days where they you know they have mom on the ship that's what they call it they call her mom so they have her on the ship and they do that once year. early in the year like around january february and now that i'm thinking about it they probably do it to commemorate you know february early february, you know he passed away february 4th so um, just to commemorate that that's amazing that's awesome let me read this this does give some more i want to say data that that We'll give everybody more context, and then we'll we'll wrap this up with the points that you wanted to bring up, Eddie. All right, so back to the book. The years seemed to move slowly after Freddie's death, but finally, in 1973, after so many years, the Vietnam, the war in Vietnam was officially declared ended. The Paris Peace Accord was signed by North Vietnam and the United States. According to official military figures, combat air casualty files of November 1993, and the adjutant. General's center file of 1981 from the National Archives, the Vietnam War claimed the following lives in terms of troop numbers and respective coalition rations. Nations, sorry. The Vietnam War claimed the following lives in terms of troop numbers and respective coalition nations. 47,378 U.S. troops, 15,000 of those were Marines. 223,748 South Vietnamese 4,407 South Koreans, 469 Australians, 351 Thailanders, Thailand, people from Thailand, 
55 people from New Zealand and 1.1 million North Vietnamese were killed in this macro conflict of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War wounded 304,704 U.S. troops, 1.1 million South Vietnamese, 17,000 South Korean, 2,940 Australian, 1,358 wounded from Thailand, 212 from New Zealand, 600,000 North Vietnam, North Vietnamese. In addition, the U.S. enlisted the U.S. listed 2,338 troops as missing in action. Two years later, after the end of the war, after much wrangling among some some of Edinburgh's powerful people, who lived on Country Country Club Drive, that byway was renamed Freddie Gonzalez Drive. At 2.30 p.m. on Sunday, October 26, 1975, Freddie's promise to his mother was fulfilled. The Freddie Gonzalez Elementary was dedicated at the exact place he'd promised his mother he would build a big house for her. The U.S. Marine Corps provided a band, a dedication plaque, and a replica Medal of Honor to put on display. Invitations were sent out to Texas Secretary of State Mark White Senator Lloyd Benson and Rep. Representative Giga de la Garza, among many local dignitaries. The school board also sent invitations out to all of Freddie's Marine Corps buddies and friends in South Texas. American Legion Post 408, named for Freddie, held a barbecue after the dedication ceremonies. Colonel Marcus Gravel, Freddie's battalion commander, was there to speak about his Marine Corps service, as witnessed by him. He was stationed at the Pentagon at the time as a public affairs officer's officer with the Assistant Secretary of Defense. Colonel Gravel presented Doria with two dozen red roses, a gift from the men that were with that were in Sergeant Gonzalez Alpha Company, third platoon. About two hundred people attended, packed into the school's cafeteria. Though it was bad weather that day, it was standing room only, according to an article printed that evening by the Edinburgh Daily Review. And that's a story of as best as I could note. As best as you could, um, I guess, pick out from the sections. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's, that's so great that they built the school right where he said he was going to build his mother her house. And it's, again, like, it's, it's so crazy to me because Edinburgh is such a, it's not a big town by any means necessary, but it's, it definitely ranges. You know, it's got a good, good size on it. 77,000 population about. Yeah. Man, like we're not more than a couple miles from Freddie Gonzalez Elementary. I live right down the road from it. I'll say you live, yeah, you live like, right down the and road. That all, and that all happened right there, and I had no clue. I just knew that he was a hero, hometown hero. That's yeah. all. Yeah. And I, I, after, like I said, I recommend everybody go get this book if, if you're curious enough. So there are details that I, I Right now we're already, you know, almost two hours in. I mean, if I read, the, if I read the whole book, yeah, we'd be here for three, four hours. You know, this, this, this is not that. But the point is Memorial Day. Yeah, it's, uh, it's important to have that perspective because it's easy to get lost in the, uh, let's get together and barbecue, let's celebrate a three-day weekend, let's try to sneak out early on Friday to get a four-day weekend. It's easy to get caught up in that. 
and, uh, and forget what this is all about. And then we're able to remind ourselves what this is all about, but then we even then still have almost no context, you know, and, and it really takes a perspective like this one yeah. to, to really nail it in. What I've uh, kind of been holding back this whole time since you actually started reading the first uh, letter, and then when you were um, reading the paragraph um, about how... Um, about how Freddie's mom was 16 and, and, you know, and he was born and then she went right to work and all of that. I started thinking a lot about, about legacy and because uh, that's something I think about pretty often. And it, it's just like, it's like, man, like 16 is a really young age to have a, have a kid. And then not only that, but she was, she was washing and drying, man. She's, you know, both mom and dad. Yep. And, and she raised, you know, Freddie herself. And then, you know, to have him go through high school and then be the first, you know. Yep, to graduate high right. school. I mean, we're not even talking college for our current situation. You know, right now everybody's, you know, wanting to graduate college. This is this is then, you know, high school is a big deal. This is this is when high school is a big deal versus now. Right. It's like you need to graduate high school, you're going to go to college. You know, it's a And whole now it's kind of just expected. Advanced. Yeah, just advanced. Yeah, just yeah. moved. But, um, you know, like she's 16. Like what a, what a young age to have a son and maybe um, even slightly unprepared possible you know and just um a lot of unknowns at that age i i could not imagine having a son or a daughter a, a child and at, at 16 nope. i don't know what i would do yeah it's, i mean i dude it's 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 beyond measure because i mean we're now 24 25 26 so it's it's like i said it's, it's just beyond measure for now but yeah if you try to it's hard to even comprehend or even uh bring up a theory about how yeah. it feels to be 16 and, yeah. and having a child and making a conscious choice to then continue to work, drop out of high school, go work to provide for the family. Yeah. And then think about maybe how much flack she got from maybe some members of the community. I mean, I, I don't know what at all the dynamic was back then mm-hmm. about having a kid at 16 years old, but I mean, right now, if you have a kid and you're 16 years old, it's, it's pretty damn frowned upon. Yeah. And I would say back then when it was even a smaller town, I would venture say even more so. Even more so. It probably, it probably flew around quicker than, than we could ever imagine at the moment. But, um, I mean, you know, just imagine how much flack she might have gotten for being 16 and pregnant and having a kid and then having to drop out of school to, um, you know, to raise that child. But then look at, like, it just goes back to, like, everything for a reason, you know? Yeah. Like, look at what he went on to do. And, like, the lives he saved and the lives he impacted and, and the community he's impacted. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, that's, that's the main thing that sticks with me. Um, out of everything, it's just like you never know who someone's going to grow up to be, and um, and everybody has a purpose. I feel like we're all here with a purpose, and and we've got to leave the earth fulfilling that purpose. And I mean, that's just a great example of of that. I think, and you just never know just what what arise what might arise out of the situation. You know, it's a it's just such a like a blessing to think about. You know, the gift of life and the gift of like the meaning of life and our purpose and and you know and and even when you're reading the the paragraph about from a young age when he when they went to the movies and he saw the John Wayne movie mm-hmm. with Iwo Jima yeah. and that struck a nerve with him like i think about the movie American Sniper and and how like the dad in the in one of the opening scenes was like you know there's uh, there's the sheep and then there's the sheep dog and then the wolf you know yep. and yep. he makes those analogies and and he goes and we're not raising sheep and we're sure as hell not raising wolves yeah you know, yeah, you you almost get beat worse if you become a wolf, right? Which is, I think that's great. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's and great, um, and so you know, in that family, they were raising Chris Kyle and his brother to be sheepdogs, you know, protectors, mm-hmm. and um, and the same way that 
Jocko, um, as he talks about in his podcast, he talks about his childhood and, and, um, and, you know, he says about how he always felt that warrior call, Yeah. you know, and not everyone feels that. I, I don't think, I don't think not everyone feels that sheepdog call. Um, I know for the most part, definitely it, it's like not my thing, but, mm-hmm. um, but you know, like it's I very, got your back. thank you. It's, <laughs> uh, it's very clear that Freddie had that, that calling from a, from an early age, yep. you know, Yep. And then to see where it took him in life, um, you know, first to graduate high school and his family, very big deal. And then a month shortly after, decides to take the bigger step, the one bigger than himself, and, and lay down the ultimate potential sacrifice, which he eventually did fulfill, yep. um, you know. Just legacy is a big thing. And, and I know, like, my brother is graduating high school um, in exactly a week. And or I guess a little under now, six days, but yeah. he's graduating from high school finally. And and well, he's graduating salutatorian, which is a, a big deal for our family. It's a, it's a big deal for my mom. Um, I think for me, it's just kind of like, well, he's you know, my brother's always been smart. I just kind of, yeah. you know, he's been he's been at the number two spot for for as long as I can remember since middle school. And so, you know, they've always been, you know, duking it out neck and neck. And, and I knew he was always up there. So it's kind of no shocker for me. But for mom. Like and for dad too, uh, for my parents, they were the first to graduate high school in their families. My mom's parents are from Mexico, and they immigrated here. And then, um, and then, well, dads are, are from here. I, I'm not sure how far back in the lineage we have to go for dad's family to be from Mexico, but that's where the ancestry is from as well. Yep. But again, my mom and dad, first generation high school graduates, their parents did not graduate high school. You know, they worked. They were um, ranchers or farmers. Yeah, you yeah, know, both, they yeah. worked in the field, and so for. Uh, and, you know, and then mom, uh, dad doesn't have a college degree, but, but mom went on to get her college degree, but she had to work um, to supplement that financially, and, and she had to take a whole bunch of night classes in, in, um, in turn with that, too. So it took her eight and a half to nine years to graduate college, um, you know, to finish and, and not owe a dime to anyone after all was said and done. And so she was getting teary-eyed the other night thinking about how now Justin is graduating um, salutatorian. My brother's graduating salutatorian. And and so, you know, I, I was kind of getting choked up hearing her talk about it because, you know, and then I brought up again, like legacy, like, you know, you just like, you know, we come from a, you know, not too far, not too many generations back, a couple of generations back where graduating high school was not a thing. And then and then now to have someone in the family graduating this far up in high school and then yep. and then going on to college to, you know, to hopefully greater and bigger things, you know, it's just uh, just never know where things are going to turn up. But um, and and I feel like something so grand um, and fulfilling comes out of something that starts out so small, like the humble beginnings of uh, of, uh, of, you know, Freddie's mom, you know, 16 years old, work in the field to support the, you know, support her son, support the family. Mm-hmm. And then, just, you know, look how many lives it's impacted since. And hopefully now will only impact more with this little piece being revealed to the interwebs and you you listeners out there and this is just one soldier who we are recognizing on memorial day think about that like out of the thousands if not millions i'm not sure but oh i couldn't i couldn't give you an exact number but well let me just that last bit that last bit that i wrote of like the the little uh the the data the you know 47,378 U.S. soldiers died in Vietnam, you know. And then 300, over, oh, a little over 300,000 wounded. 
That's just one war. War. I'm gonna I'm gonna get a book from World War One. We'll do that another day. But trench warfare, World War One. That's ball game. Yeah, that's. Um, I know for sure. I remember that from from history class in college. That yeah. that's definitely a, a game changer with yeah. World War One. But just for the listeners to think about, this is just one story. Yeah. And and just hopefully it gives you some perspective from hearing um, Andy read this. Um, hopefully it gives you some perspective, just in some insight into into you know one soldier's impact on um, on a community on our hometown that yeah. is now seventy seventy seven thousand strong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. Yes. Precisely. Precisely. Well, we can wrap it up there. Um, don't worry about social media today, Eddie. Just because I'm gonna close with this letter. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. It's gonna be in the show notes. You know, we. I. I always leave in the show notes just for this one because I think. Uh, I just want. I. I honestly just want. I want to close this out. Go for it. This is Freddy Gonzalez's last letter to his mother. He died 11 days later during the Battle of Hugh City, defending his platoon at the St. Joan of Arc Catholic Church. January 24, 1968. Mother, I was shocked to hear that Victor got killed, but it's things that will happen in war. Mom, please don't worry about me, because I'll come out just fine. Remember what I told you before I left, that I would come right back. I hope all the people back home remember Victor, because he didn't give his life for nothing it was in the line of duty his life was given willingly rather than taken that's the way i think that's the way i want you to think i wrote victor's wife yesterday telling her how i felt and to let her know that if there's anything i can help out i will be glad to do it well mom regards to all the family write soon love your son fred p.s I have gone to Mass when I can. Sometimes the chaplain piles up empty boxes and makes an altar in the field. We have Mass like that. Have been going to confession too.